Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. Um, I, gr- I didn't grow up in church, and so I know that um, on a Sunday, uh, if you don't have experience gathering with the church, uh, there are other things you could be doing with your time. So we're honored that you would be here to spend time with us, to gather as the church. Uh, some of the things we say around here often are we gather for the purpose of scattering. So we come together, and the hope is through the teaching of God's Word, through singing songs, taking communion together each week, that we would be reminded and refreshed. Because We're tired when we come in here because we're living intentionally on mission. And so if that's you, you come into this place. My prayer this morning is that the music and the teaching of God's word and taking communion together as a church, that uh, you would walk out of this place being sent, uh, prepared to live where God has called you to be and to love the people he's called you to love. We say it this way. We simply want to be disciples who make disciples. Um, We don't like viewing church as a place where you come and watch ministry happen on a stage. Uh, This is just a moment where we gather. Ministry and life and following Jesus happens when we scatter from this place. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning, uh, and then we'll jump into God's Word. Father, I thank you for your presence with us this morning. I am so grateful. God, after a week, many people might be feeling overwhelmed and frustrated and tired if we come into this place, and your truth is all that can pick us up and lift us up. God, as we encounter your word, I pray that you would speak clearly to us through the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, that we would hear clearly what you have to say. And Father, that when we walk out of this place, we would grab onto a truth, that we would meditate on on it this week, God, that we would spend time with you and be be aware of your presence in our life and the work you want to do through us. Father, we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this week about a uh, Tennessee Titans fan a New England Patriots fan and an Indianapolis Colts fan that were together in Saudi Arabia, and they were sharing a smuggled bottle of Maker's Mark, right? And uh, the Saudi police come rushing in because in that place you cannot only have alcohol, but it's punishable if you're consuming it. And so they're arrested, and their punishment is death. They're sentenced to death. Now, through the work of some pretty good lawyers, uh, they got it reduced from death to life in prison. And so at their sentencing, the sheik... Happened, it happened to be a national holiday, and so he looked at them and said, hey, I, I just, man, I feel for you guys, and so we're going to reduce it from life in prison to 20 lashes. You've got to withstand 20 lashes, but because it also happens to be my wife's birthday, I'm going to go ahead and give you guys one wish. So you can make one wish, and you're 20 lashes, and you're out of here. Well, the Tennessee Titans fan was up first. He got up and said, hey, I'll take a pillow on my back. I want you to strap a pillow to my back. And so that's what he got. And after 10 lashes, the pillow was completely gone, and he got beat with 10 other lashes, and he's bleeding and crying and carried away. Patriots fan, after watching this, steps up and thinks, I'm smarter, at least we all think we are, us, us Patriots fans. And so he says, I'll take two pillows. That's my wish. I want two pillows. So the sheik's like, okay, two pillows. And after 15 lashes, both pillows were gone, and he's left crying and injured like Tom Brady and has to be carried off. And, and he's gone, right? The, the third guy, the Colts fan, steps up. But before he can say anything, the sheik looks at him and says, you, you're a fan of one of the greatest teams in the world. I mean, your fans are so loyal and they're dedicated and, and you guys love your team so well. Because of that, I mean, because of your loyalty, I'm going to give you two wishes. I want to grant you two wishes. Well, the Colts fan thinks about it for a minute. And he looks up, he says, man, all right, well, how about instead of 20 lashes, I'll take 100 lashes. And the sheik's like, not only are you handsome and intelligent, but you're courageous too. If it's 100 lashes you want, it's 100 lashes that you get. What about your second wish? Colts fan thinks about it for a minute. He says, how about you strap that Patriots fan to my back? <laughs> now, uh, that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. <laughs> but I had to win you over. 
because what we're going to talk about this morning is a little bit difficult to talk through. We're in a series this summer through the book of Proverbs. We're studying through Proverbs together, and we've titled this series Blind Spots. And the reason being because Proverbs is continually pointing out to us these areas of our life, if we're not careful, they develop into a blind spot where we begin to struggle spiritually with certain things in our lives that we don't even recognize anymore, and they can lead to destruction. And so you'll remember Solomon is continually teaching and wanting to stress into his children about different areas of their life they have to be aware of so that they can overcome these things and they won't lead down a path of destruction. And so today, we reach the blind spot where we're going to discuss greed. And greed's hard to talk about in church because when you talk about greed, you talk about money. When you talk about money, I understand uh, because I've been there, people start feeling uncomfortable. And maybe you're sitting here and people, like many people, and you get nervous because somehow you think that when we talk about money, myself or any other preacher you've experienced in the past, we're just going to start manipulating you and trying to talk you into giving your money. So I want to remove a few suspicions before we jump in this morning. And the first one is this. I want to remove some fear by saying, let's start from the assumption that God has no needs. Let's just work from that assumption. He's the creator. He created everything. And everything that he created, including you and your money and everything you've ever experienced in your life, he's the creator. So in being the creator, he has no need. But he uses our gifts, our generosity, what we give, to help us overcome greed and to participate in what he's doing in the world. And because of that, because of what he's done for us through Jesus, he deserves our first and our best when we offer things to him. And he uses these resources to bless the world. But that's different than saying that God has a need, because he doesn't. God has no need. So overcoming greed and becoming radically generous people, though, because it's not based on God's need, Therefore, it's not just about your money, it's actually about discipleship. And if you've been at New Hope, we love talking about this because discipleship is the journey that you're on with Jesus to become more and more like him. And so as you're being discipled, finances and money and greed and generosity, these are all part of it. See, it's not just about your money, it's actually about a response you make to the gospel. I heard one person say it this way, and I would, this would be my prayer for you. As we talk about finances and money and greed today... My prayer is that you would not become radically generous in response to a sermon for just a season, but in response to the gospel for a lifetime. You see, God has called us to be generous. But I want to be clear. If, as we talk about this, you just can't get comfortable. I mean, you just can't get past the feeling that you're being manipulated into giving money to the church. Then I would ask you this. I would ask you to continue to apply this teaching, but just give somewhere else. Give somewhere else. If you can't get past it, that feeling of just being uh, coerced into something, because the Bible tells us not to give out of compulsion, but as you're uh, wrestling with generosity in terms of your own discipleship, just give somewhere else. I would rather that you be generous and overcome the blind spot of greed and what it can do to your soul and your heart and give somewhere else than use a bad experience in church or a feeling that you have in this room today to prevent you from the life that God clearly wants you to live. And the life he clearly wants you to experience. And so we're going to talk through greed today uh, out of the book of Proverbs. We're also going to jump to Luke's gospel as well. Proverbs is repetitive over and over and over again. It talks about the warning of money. In fact, the Bible speaks all through the pages of Scripture about the warning of what money can do to you. And Solomon is no different. He's a good dad. If you remember, Solomon is one of the wealthiest, the wealthiest person that's ever lived in the world. Uh, we jokingly say, like, we plant gardens, he planted forests. Okay, everything that you do, he was able to do more of. He experienced it more. He had more. He uh, accumulated more. 
Uh, this guy had everything you could ever want, and yet he would write in the book of Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs that the more he got, the, the more he realized that it was not satisfying. And so now he turns and he is penning these words to his children and to those who would come after him, and he begins with telling them, hey, when it comes to finances, you honor God. In chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with your money, and with the first fruits of all of your produce. So he deserves the first and the best of everything that you have. It's as if Solomon is telling them here, uh, your money is not your own. God has entrusted you with his money, and he's asked you to be faithful in giving back. He moves on. He says, if you don't, throughout the book, he'll give multiple examples. I'm going to go to chapter 28, verse 22, where he says, if you don't, this is kind of the life that you're headed towards. And he says this, a stingy man hastens towards wealth. I mean, all his focus and goal is gaining money, that 401k, retirement and comfort, and, and being able to buy certain things and have certain things. And And when you do that, he does not know that poverty will come upon him. Now, as I thought about that verse, what comes to my mind is that I've known a lot of people that chase after money and essentially worship money, and they get it. They actually attain all the money that they've been searching for. They get the wealth, they get the money, they get the comfort. So what's he talking about? Well, Solomon's talking about something he'd experienced. As he chased money and focused on money, it wasn't so much that he was poor physically, but spiritually, poor in spirit. It depleted him emotionally. Because it left him wanting more and more and more. He never attained satisfaction. And he says, the more you pursue money, the less satisfied you'll actually be. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 clearly identifies greed, the pursuit of money, greed, as an idol. Now, to be clear, an idol is anything, anything other than God that you pledge your allegiance to, that you allow to consume you, that you allow to be the primary thing in your life, whether you do it consciously or even subconsciously, similar to a blind spot that begins to form in your spirit and in your mind, and you begin to battle this and wrestle it? How do you know that that's you? How do you know if you wrestle with greed or you wrestle with the consumption of too much stuff or you're pursuing money or material possessions too much? A couple questions. How many of you talk more about money than you talk about most other things? How many of you check your bank account more often than you probably should or consumed with your retirement accounts? These things aren't bad in and of themselves, but the more attention you pay to them, the more they eat up your soul. The more uh, focus and, and the, the more of your allegiance you give to these things, the more they corrupt you and they eat you up. This is why Jesus was very clear in Luke's gospel when, in chapter 12 when he said this, watch out. Essentially, that word, when you translate it, simply means pay attention. And he doesn't say, notice he doesn't lead into this verse and say, if you're wealthy, pay attention. If you have a lot of money and you have a really big net worth, if you've accomplished quite a bit in your life and you have a whole bunch of really nice stuff, then you need to pay attention. No, he levels the playing field. He says greed is actually something that all people can struggle with, irregardless of your socioeconomic standing. And he says, watch out, pay attention, be on your guard, meaning do not get distracted from this. Because all the enemy wants to do is distract you from this blind spot of greed in your mind and in your heart. He says, because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, here's what I've learned about greed in my own heart and in my own life, just to be transparent. Greed's the blind spot I have no trouble seeing in other people. I have no problem identifying other people when they're behaving greedy or their pursuits are greedy. It's really easy, actually. But I'm really not great at noticing it creep up into my own heart because it's, it's kind of stealthy. It kind of just slowly comes in and it slowly grows inside your heart and your desires are changing and you're consumed and before you know it, you're spending all your time talking about your finances and where, and I'm guilty, of, I'm so guilty of this because the enemy is the master of deceit. 
Now, why is it that we seem to be able to see greed in other people and we don't only see it in ourselves? We can't just notice it around us. And I'm convinced it's because we always compare up. Rarely, in any situation when it comes to your money or your possessions, do you compare laterally or down? We really don't. But if we did, we'd notice globally, if you, if you can hear my voice right now, you are among the 2% of the wealthiest people on our entire planet. We're in the top 2%, if you can hear my voice. That's fascinating to me because if we would compare down, we would understand, wow. But we'd never do that. We always compare to the, the people that are either right next to us or more than likely we compare up and look at the people that have more than us because it makes us feel better about what little that we have. Tim Keller says it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Once you're able to live in a certain neighborhood, send your children to its schools and participate in its social life, you'll find yourself surrounded by quite a number of people who have more money than you do. You don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. You compare yourself to the people in your socioeconomic bracket, the people that are right around you and right above you. You begin to notice that they have more than you have. But why is that? What is it in our heart? You see, greed is this idol, but how it works is it just slowly convinces you that you need more or it slowly convinces you that you deserve more. You see, I'm convinced that there's two ways that we primarily battle greed and allow it to kind of win over in our heart, and, or we intentionally ignore the blind spot. We kind of have a feeling it might be there. But friends, I'll tell you this. I've been in ministry now for like 12 or 13 years, um, and I've been here at New Hope for seven of those years. And a lot of times people come into the office and they want to talk and they want to uh, pray and they want to uh, talk through some issues they've got, a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of other, and look, I love it. It's one of the joys of my life. I'd say it this way. I hate when people hurt, but I really like being on their speed dial when they do because God has just blessed my life by being able to be a part of their, their difficulty. Now, I say all that to say in those 12 to 13 years, I've never once had anybody come in and sit down next to me and say, I'm really heartbroken. I'm really going through a hard time because I'm greedy. I mean, I just want money and stuff, and I'm pursuing it like crazy. Never. For me, never. Maybe others. I don't know. But for me, I've never experienced that. And I think it's for one of these two reasons. The first one is this. We compare. We're constantly comparing ourselves, uh, and we compare our other people. We always compare to others in an effort to avoid dealing with what's going on in our heart. Maybe you've done this, like where you're like, hey, I, I have this stuff, but man, look at that guy. He's greedy. Like I might drive this car, but my neighbor, he just bought this new car. He's the greedy one. Or I drive through certain neighborhoods so you can feel better about the house that you live in because these people are obviously greedy because they got bigger houses or they've got more stuff or they go on more vacations and, and constantly looking at other people in an effort to compare ourselves to them to feel better about us. And maybe I'm the only one in the room. I told first service, I said, anybody got a pin? Because you could hear a drop. That makes it hard to talk about. Just all cards on the table. This is a hard one to talk about because we're very privileged people and greed is very easy for us to um, battle. It's very easy for us to struggle with without ever even knowing it. The other way is this. We justify. We justify our behavior in an effort and we justify our desires in an effort to not really deal with what's going on in our heart. So you look at it, you say, Rob, I grew up uh, poor, and I've worked really hard to achieve what I've achieved. I deserve certain things, and I've worked really hard for certain things. Here's the, here's the deal. Having money and saving money and buying nice things is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. There is no sin in those things until those things become the, the focus of your heart. Until you picturing whether or not you can live without those things creates anxiety and worry in you. 
When you think about, if I, man, if I lost my house, my life would be over. If I lost my car, my life would be over. If I didn't have the security I have in my bank account, my life would be over. When you get to those type of feelings, and now you continually justify yourself by saying, hey, I just work hard and I pursue things. Look, I, I tell people this all the time. This was a struggle for me to justify it because I did grow up in a poor situation. I did. Now, not by worldly standards, but by American standards. I grew up in a poor part of town. We didn't have much. And so I worked really hard to get out of that. I worked really hard. And, and I went to school and I got good grades and I went to college and got good grades and I went to grad school and I got good grades. And I've just, I'm, I don't ever want to go back. And if I'm not careful in my own life, I go back to saying, well, I'm justifying my pursuit of nice things because I never want to get back to that. And what really is going on in my heart is I'm greedy for more and for better. And I'm not allowing God to meet me in that place and provide the satisfaction that none of the stuff is seemingly providing. Like Solomon, all is waste, all is lost. Because it just, look, when you compare yourself, if your life, when it comes to your money, is about comparison and justification, it's like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It's like a temporary satisfaction, just for a moment. But it's killing you on the inside. It eats your soul. Changes your relationships. It preoccupies you from what God has called you to do and what he wants to do in your life. And I've fallen prey to this numerous times. And what I've learned is this. Greed is not a financial issue. It's not about money. It's a heart issue. Because greed can affect anybody, anywhere. It doesn't matter how much money you make. This can be a blind spot in your life because it's not about money. Greed is not about your financial standing. Greed is about the condition of your heart and where you allow money to sit on the throne of your heart where you allow finances. And, and look, some of you are thinking right now, like I would be thinking like, whoo, boy, I can't wait for so-and-so to hear this. I'm going to download this one and send it to him. When really that is a clear sign that you need to look inside. You got to look in your own heart and say, this is absolutely, because Jesus, if Jesus would look at us and say, be on guard, watch out for all types of greed in your life. Watch out for it because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. If Jesus can say that to everybody, then everybody's susceptible to greed. You can't find a single person in this world that's not susceptible to this blind spot creeping up in our heart and overtaking us. Look, here's the thing. Jesus warned people more about about greed than he did about sex. And it's easy for us to point out sexual immorality. It's easy for us to know very clearly, I'm struggling with sexual immorality. I've got these battles or these struggles. It's really hard for us to say greed. And yet Jesus warned us that greed was more prevalent than even that. And yet most of the people I've encountered, myself included, we oftentimes don't feel like this is a struggle for us. This is a struggle for the next guy, for the other people. So we continue to buy things and compare ourselves and justify our behavior. And here's the thing, stuff is awesome, right? makes you feel better. I've shared this with you. I'm an Apple guy. I like Apple computers and Apple devices. Uh, be, one, because they're just clearly better. But two, <laughs> they're just, they just draw me in. And it's fascinating how these things work. Fill in the blank for you. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe, it's a, maybe you're like, a, I'm a Chevy person or I'm a Ford person. And here's the thing. The moment Chevy releases their new model of a truck, all of a sudden your starts breaking down. Isn't that crazy? unbelievable they've got like this an apple the moment they release something new all of a sudden mine mine just quit working really did it was just uh, so bad so upset and i can't get work done so now i need to go and buy the new one because it's better and i need it and and all of a sudden these marketers they've got wrapped they've just got us wrapped up in greed all they have to do is play to it just a little bit because they know just compare yourself up you don't have as much as the next guy but you do deserve this or justify it. You've worked hard. You deserve this. You need to have the best and the newest. And, the, and look, those things aren't bad. 
But when they become the source of your satisfaction, when you find yourself saying things like, we got the new house, we finally moved into a new house, so now we're better, life's better, we can be better parents, our marriage is better, all because of a house, you're being deceived, you're drinking salt water. Or when you say, I got the new truck, finally, I can feel like a man, I mean, driving that sedan, that four-door, oh, that was horrible, but I got my new truck, so now I feel like I'm really a man, and when I pull up to certain places, people respect me more, you're drinking salt water. You're drinking salt water and you're falling prey to a blind spot that will corrupt your soul. I got the newest device, I got the newest thing, and now I feel like I fit in and I'm relevant and I can connect with people because all of a sudden you have to have certain things to connect with other people. I've, I've heard ministers do this all the time. I gotta have these nice things because I'm not gonna connect with my community. I'm saying, I didn't know the gospel depended on you having nice stuff. You're drinking salt water. It's hard. It's really hard to get up here and talk about because we don't see it in ourselves. And Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Here's what I want you to know. Your self-worth is not determined by your net worth and it never will be. But some of you are convinced it is. And so we pursue things. We want things. Why? Because we are convinced that our self-worth is determined by our net worth, that I'm only good enough if I make enough, if I have enough, if I, and if I, if I have the newest and the best so that I stand out just a little bit when really there's something deep going on in your heart that you're not even seeing, and you need to peel back the layers of greed to see what might be happening in your heart. I think the best example of this in Scripture is found in Luke 19. It's an encounter that Jesus had with a guy named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. and a Okay, good. I had to get it out of the way. Um, if, you're, if you didn't grow up in church and you don't know what that song is, you didn't miss anything. And I will tell you, uh, I was actually going for tax collector, so you failed the quiz, but you got the song right. Uh, so he's a tax collector, and he's shunned by his community. Now, a tax collector in his day would have been similar in our day to someone working for the IRS, but it was way more corrupt than that. The Israelites were a conquered nation. They were conquered by the Romans. The Romans came in, and they began to impose all of these oppressive taxes on the people. And they would levy these taxes against all of these villages to get most of the money poured into Rome, therefore impoverishing the people and making them rely on Rome all the more. Okay? You're like, no, Rob, that's not different than the IRS. <laughs> it's different. Think World War II when people would team up with the Nazis and betray their own people. All right? Think about uh, people that go in together and they exploit young people, w- women and children into sex slavery just so they can make a dollar and they exploit and push down people and remove their dignity. This was uh, the tax collector in that day. They were hated by people. They did everything they could to obtain money. They could go into a town, and they would not just get the money. They had all the privileges they needed to go into a town and say, this is how much you owe Rome, but essentially we're charging you X amount because all Rome wants from us is 9%, but I'm going to charge you 39% because I'm going to make 20%. So they made a lot of money. They were wealthy off exploiting and pushing down on people. It's a beautiful picture of greed at its core, betraying their own people for a dollar for some money. And you're thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not that greedy. Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Now, we're going to pick up the story as Jesus is going to encounter Zacchaeus. And you're going to see what greed has done in his heart and in his life and how greed is overcome in our life. First, uh, First verse, chapter 19. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Chief tax collector in the Greek is architelanos. It simply means uh, tax collector, the chief of them all, meaning 
he was hubbed in Jericho. And this is really strategic because now from Jericho, he would send out a whole team of tax collectors and they would go out and exploit all the people and they would bring him back money. So while the tax collectors made money, the chief tax collector was banking on everybody. So he would have had the biggest house, the nicest stuff. He would have worked so hard to get to it and he had everything he'd ever worked for. He had all kinds of money and he did it in the greediest of ways, which means that he was the most hated man in that region. That anybody in that day could have pointed to Zacchaeus and said, up on the hill, you see that big house? That's owned by Zacchaeus, and we hate him. We hate him because he's responsible for all the people that oppress us. We hate him. He's the mob boss of that day. No one could touch him, but everybody hated him. Verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was, a small, he was small in stature. So what, what it's saying there is this. I, I just want you to picture this. All the money, the big house on the hill, Everything you could ever want, and yet something in him said, I've got to figure out who Jesus is because nothing that I've attained in my life is truly satisfying me. I've been drinking salt water, and I'm dying, and maybe this guy has something that will help me get past the lack of satisfaction that my stuff is giving me, that my money's giving me, that my status is giving me, that my trips and my everything, all the vehicles, all the, all the people working for me, everything is, I've pursued and poured my life into has left me wanting more. Maybe Jesus has more, but he couldn't get to him. And you think, well, you're a small dude. Work your way through the crowd and just stand in the front row. There's no way anybody would ever let him get near that crowd. The moment they saw him, they're gonna, someone's going to scream fire so that they could trample him. They're going to push him over, drop elbows. They'd never let him get in there. They hated him. They despised him, and he knew it. So, you know, I want to see Jesus, but I can't get through that crowd because everybody hates me. Nobody wants to be around me. So verse 4, so he ran on ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus was about to come that way. He wanted to see Jesus so bad he climbed a tree. No man in that day and age would ever climb a tree. It was a form of uh, humiliation. But for Zacchaeus, think about this. He was already hated by so many people. His dignity was already depleted. He had nothing to lose. He felt so lost and so alone. So he goes and he wants to climb up into this tree. Think about this too. This is what fascinates me. He had all the money and all the success, the big house and probably the beautiful furniture. And you got to think about this. When, when Jesus would come and eat with people, it was a sign of friendship. And this guy's house has been empty for years. Oh, it's beautiful. But it's empty. It's salt water. And so now he desires to see him. He goes to the sycamore tree. The sycamore tree is important if you've ever seen one. The trunk is low to the ground. Uh, the branches are low to the ground on the trunk and he could easily climb up into the tree like how the short guy climb a tree come on you're missing details the sycamore tree tells you he was able to climb it he gets up in the tree and they had big branches and lots of leaves and so very easy uh, to look out but nobody could look in they couldn't see him in but he could look out and see them a beautiful picture of what greed's done to his life completely eating him he doesn't want anyone to see him he doesn't want people he's ashamed of his life he's ashamed of what's the condition of his heart and so it's a beautiful picture of his soul in that moment He's like, if I could just camp out here and hide and nobody has to see me, that would be the best. But Jesus wasn't having it. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to that place, he looked up, looked up into the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and received him joyfully. This is fascinating because Jesus looks up at him and Zacchaeus is probably like ready to wet his pants. He's so nervous. Like, oh man, he's here. That means the crowd's here. They hate me. He's here to just publicly humiliate me. Everyone, just assuming the worst. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I got to come into your house and eat a meal with you today. And to everybody around them, they would have heard, hey, you're my friend. Because to eat a meal with anybody in that day was a simple sign of friendship. It means we're friends. And so Zacchaeus, all he's hearing 
Think about it. His whole past is flooding through his mind. Like, I've isolated everybody. And this guy, the guy that everybody wants to be around and learn from, he wants to be my friend. I think he dove out of that tree faster and more joyfully than he ever would have climbed up into it. And so now Jesus wants to take him into his house and just spend some time with him. And he's thinking, I've got a second chance. Maybe he's going to do something, and I just got to be around him because I haven't had anybody in my house in the longest time. Think about it, the beautiful, long, big tables that no one's ever sat around because there are no friends for him. Because his greed has isolated him from any kind of meaningful relationship. Because all he ever wanted was money and stuff and success. And so he missed out on pouring himself into the meaningful relationships. He had got everything he thought he needed and missed out on everything he actually needed. It's a warning for us. Everybody around him began to grumble, right? Because that's what we do when we notice greed. They grumbled and they said, he's going, into the, he's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner? How disgusting. He's greedy. They're missing it. We're all susceptible to greed. They couldn't see it in their own heart because they were comparing up. So Jesus goes and he into the house in verse 8. And Zacchaeus, this is the life change that takes place after just a few hours with Jesus. Look what happened to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I'm giving away half of everything I have to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, anything, I could, I'm going to restore it times four, fourfold. I'm going to give them all back. What he's saying is, I don't care about money anymore. In fact, if you calculate the amount he's trying to give back, he's not going to have a lot left. He's not going to be super wealthy after this. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Look, this is, what he's, this is what happens. Just a few hours with Jesus recalibrates everything he ever thought about money and greed and possessions. And all of a sudden, this guy's like, I don't need money. All I need is Jesus. After spending time with him and having him sit at my table, money's just not that important to me. And all of a sudden, he goes from being incredibly greedy to radically generous. And the same thing can happen when you encounter Jesus. That doesn't mean that you won't ever have things and you won't ever have money and that you shouldn't save. It just means it no longer controls your heart. You're no longer drinking salt water, but the water of life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 4. That you can drink from a, a well and a spring that will never go old. It'll never leave you unsatisfied. And Jesus says the same thing can happen in your life. And so I want to look at just a few things that mark a life of radical generosity. Just a couple things. The first one is this. Many of us, we think that when we're generous, we're actually doing something for God. But remember, God doesn't have any financial needs. And so the truth of it is this. Generosity. Gospel-centered, biblical generosity is not about what God wants from you. Giving is about what God wants for you. Because God knows that greed closes your heart, makes you incapable of seeing what he's doing in your life. And at the same time, he knows that when you're generous, you unlock the door of your heart to experience the life that he wants for you. You see, God will do way more for you than you'll ever be able to do for him. I've learned this over my life over and over and over again. For the last few years, I've been in a contest with God, seeing who could outgive who. Last maybe six years, God's up six to nothing. You just can't, you can't beat him, man. He, he's always going to give more. Why? Because he knows that as we give, it's not about us. It's about, he's transforming your heart and your life. Generosity, radical, gospel-centered generosity. It's not about what you do for him. And a lot of people think it is. Like, all of a sudden, all right, I got all this money. And now if I give my money, if I hand out, how much of my money does God need? It's my God tax, right? Got to pay my God tax, and then I'll go pay my other. And you kind of view it as though it's your money. I've talked to financial advisors who have said this to me, and I just find it fascinating. So when I meet with a couple, and they sign a $500,000 check over to me, I don't think, woohoo, $500,000, I'm going to do whatever I want with it. I'm going to play here. I'm gonna get... I never think that. 
$500,000, I think, I got to carefully think about what they would want me to do with this money. Okay, what do they want and how's it going to... And giving's the same way. God has given you everything you have. And he's saying, I trust you with this. And you're like, well, I wish he would trust me with more. Well, let me ask you a question. If you were God and you saw the way that you handle what he's entrusted you with, would you trust you with more? Really difficult. But God has called us to view our money as his and say, okay, what can I do for the kingdom? And the best way for you to do that is to start out by understanding that generosity is not about what you're doing for him. It's about what he's doing for you. The second thing is this. Generosity creates contentment in your life and in your heart. Many people have said this. A happy life is not about having all that you want, but wanting all that you have. It's about a change in perspective contentment. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy, and we're going to study 1 Timothy beginning in the fall. And he says this, godliness with, with contentment is great gain. It's the greatest gain of all. It's God saying that you have enough. Everything is sufficient for you. You can be content. You don't need more to be happy. And in those moments when you experience contentment in your life and in your heart, that's when you're released to be even more generous. That's just the way it works. I've learned this over and over again. When my wife and I, we sit down and we pray together at night, and when we have found certain things that we want to be generous to, and we prayed hard about it, and we've decided we want to be generous, when we have done that, all of a sudden, and we've sacrificially given, we're content with what we've got left. But in those seasons where we're not giving sacrificially and in abundance, all of a sudden we're worried about finances and bills and where's the money coming from, where's it going? All of a sudden we're consumed with it and it's as if God is saying, just keep giving and I'll keep showing up. You can't beat me. Now, does it mean that God's always going to, as you give, God's always going to give more money to you? No, it doesn't. It never says that, but it doesn't say he won't. Never says that he won't. This is not about, I give to God and he gives way more back to me. I'm going to get rich. This is an investment policy. I'm going to invest in God and God will return X amount percent. No, no, no. Because contentment's not money. See, contentment, much like generosity, much like greed, it's not about money. It's not a financial issue. It's an issue of your heart. And I found that contentment's a whole lot more than worthwhile for me and my family. Genuinely, I say this than a big bank account. It just feels better. You just walk with more integrity and character. Just, it's just God providing over and over again. Last is this. Generosity increases your love and appreciation for God's kingdom. Look, when you have uh, more concern for your 401k than you have for people that are lost and going to hell without Jesus, you've got a greed issue. When you talk more about your money than you do about what God's doing in the world, you've got a greed issue. And you've got to let the Holy Spirit work that out in your life. Because that's what he does. But when we're generous, we begin to see how our story gets alignment with his bigger story, and we get to be a part of something bigger than we'd ever be a part of on our own. See, when the church, when God's people give, he multiplies it exponentially, and it's unbelievable. I'm going to share a few things with you. Many of us, a, a little over a year ago, we, we began an initiative called the Reach Initiative where we, we asked everybody to give above and beyond their tithes uh, to the church so that we can enhance the campus. Now, that feels bad. Just be honest. Building, a building doesn't... But think about what it's done. Because I mean it with all my heart. When we get together as a group of elders, it is not about this campus. It's about his kingdom. I mean that with all my heart. And look at, look at it. Justin's Run for Hope. About a thousand people on our campus, that many of which got to experience walking onto a church campus for the first time, maybe ever, and hear about the good news of Jesus because you were generous. Because you gave sacrificially above, and now you're like, well, I didn't give much, and I have, it does, God takes it and he multiplies it. And, and now he multiplied it, and we've got a better facility to serve people. Think about VBS. We visited 57 unchurched families, people that didn't know Jesus because of VBS. 
because we had room for them. They came in here, they heard the gospel message, and then we made a personal touch with them afterwards. Think about the 4th of July, just this last week. Uh, July 3rd, the Whitestown fireworks. We got rid of that old white house that was sitting out in front of the building. You're like, Rob, we know you hate the house. I hate the house, but listen, the house is gone. And now visibility for fireworks. We had 250 plus people out here just on our campus and we were walking around, engaging with them, talking with them, and they were eating popcorn. And we're just having a good time being together, watching the fireworks on our campus that had room and was in a, a position to serve the community because you were generous. Let me go one step further. A couple weeks ago, I told you about a young man named Brandon who your generosity scholarshiped to go on the Christ and Youth trip with our student ministry. Brandon would not have gone on this trip without your generosity. You're thinking that's not a lot. Not a lot, but get this. On that trip, Brandon was baptized in the Christ in the ocean. Gets me every time. His forever changed because you were generous. Oh, that's not that big a deal. It's just a buck in a bucket, one extra dollar. One extra dollar changed some kid's eternity in heaven through a party because you were generous. See, our generosity is not about our campus or our church. It's about his kingdom. It's about opening our eyes to seeing how much he multiplies and does incredible works among us. And so what's the challenge? How do you, how do you go from battling greed to being radically generous? I'm going to give you a few challenges. The first one is this. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's hard to say this out loud, but I want to challenge you to tithe. I mean, it's the one thing in the scriptures that God says, hey, test me in this. Just tithe. I'm going to provide for you. You realize if every family in our church gave 10% of their, their first fruits, 10%, what the Bible scribes is a good starting place, we would fully fund our budget. We would have no debt. We would fully fund our missionaries. It'd be unbelievable. And you're like, man, there's the guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. Don't do it. I don't know who gives what. We're never going to know that. This is about what God is doing for you, not what he wants from you. And he says, begin to do this. Test me. I'm going to provide for you over and over and over again in my life. When I got married, my wife was just, man, I love her to death. She's awesome for so many reasons. She just said, we're going to give 10% no matter what, no matter how hard it gets. And we went to grad school. If you've ever been in grad school, we had a kid in grad school. I don't know, like it gets... It maybe gets lower than that, but like we were like ramen noodles in an apartment with old stains on the car. It was bad. And yet she said 10% no matter what. And God has continually showed up in our life. Because that's what he calls us to, generosity. Maybe for you and your family, when you leave today, you're going to go sit down, you're going to pray like, hey, this is not going to be easy. and We can't quite do 10%, but we're going to start making progress to that end. And I would encourage you on your time with your prayers and where the Lord's leading you, seek that out. Maybe for you, it's like, oh, well, we, we haven't been a part of the REACH initiative, but man, we see what the REACH initiative has been doing and we want to be a part of it. Then give to it. Give sacrificially to it. Or don't. It's, it's really your call. I'm not here to tell you what you have to do, but it's an option. Maybe you're challenged. You go home and you pray like, hey, we need to up our giving because we really believe in what's going on. We're just a group of people at this church, genuinely, who believe in the mission God's called us to. And if you're not a part of it yet, we really hope one day you will be. And if you're not, you're still welcome here. It's totally fine. Because generosity is not about what God wants from you. It's about what he wants to do for you. Maybe for you, you need to just go and get creative. My wife and I, we've been teaching our kids here recently about tithing. They don't like it, but they're going to learn. And they make money, and we sit down, and we just say, hey, here's 10% here. you got to save 10%. You can use and all this other stuff. And they get their envelope, and they write it on, and they come and they tithe because we want to create a habit in them for them to understand the generosity. God takes that and multiplies it, and he's going to bless your life because of it. Maybe that's the next step for your family. Maybe for you, you go home and at lunch today you pray like, hey, Lord, just reveal something to us that we need to do that's generous. And you want to support a missionary independently as a family. You want to go sponsor a child through Compassion International and you just want to make a difference in the lives of other people. And you as a family begin to pray about how can we be generous? What's our next step? 
But don't let the blind spot of greed convince you that you don't need to take a next step, because we all do. God has called us to a life of radical generosity so that we can combat the power of the enemy to create greed in our lives, to consume us, so we continually drink the salt water of more stuff and more money. And so the question for you today as you leave this place as we're sent to go live intentionally on purpose throughout the week is this, where is God calling you to be generous? And will you or will you not be faithful?